Several years ago, when Dan Mistich was a freshman at Marshall University in Huntington, West Virginia, he was on the debate team. And uh, that year's topic happened to be about industrial pollution, which was a topic I was quite interested in at the time. He wanted to come up with a variation on the topic that he thought other debaters wouldn't try. Something unique, take my own spin on the topic, and I decided to put together a case that would regulate the tampon and sanitary napkin industry. Why'd you choose that? Most individuals uh, in that year's debate topic were talking about, uh, you know, air pollution or maybe water pollution. And so although those topics are really important, uh, I was really uh, looking for something kind of unique and uh, something maybe a little bit more controversial. Uh, And so uh, when I learned that there is a bleaching process uh, in in the production of tampons and sanitary napkins that created a chemical called dioxin, Uh, It seemed like the perfect opportunity to talk about something that was uh, a little off the wall, but also relevant to the conversation that we would be having that year on the debate circuit. One tournament was in Western Kentucky. It was a big event with teams from Ohio State University and the University of Michigan, and even cadets from the West Point Military Academy. I was matched up with a West Point debater for one particular qualifying round and uh, went up, uh, gave my presentation, my Uh, I think it was a six or seven minute presentation about uh, how the tampon and sanitary napkin industry should be regulated and then uh, paused for a cross-examination period. I remember the first question that he asked me was um, he he tried to pronounce the word tampon and and kept stuttering when he used the word tampon. He he asked, uh, what's a a, a tampon? That's how he pronounced it. So at that point, I thought he was being sort of strategic – and, uh, I, you know, playing dumb for uh, the purposes of, of winning some points from the judge. It wasn't until I was asked to define the menstrual cycle. It became very clear to me that this guy had no idea about sex or the menstrual cycle or pregnancy or the birds and the bees or however you want to put it. It was probably one of the, the longest stretches of three minutes of my entire life, to be completely honest, because I was answering the questions as honestly as I possibly could. And the the, the cadet from West Point kept looking at the judge uh, incredulously. Uh, you know, I, I there was kind of this this air of suspicion in the in, in the room that I was trying to pull a fast one or that I was making up uh, something uh, that you know, was unfair and, uh, you know, constructing. He, he, he thought that the things that you were talking about sex, you were making, you were making things up. Uh, it, it seemed to me that way. Yeah. Uh, the judge from the back of the room yelled stop, uh, which had never happened to me in a debate round ever. And then the uh, judge, uh, after he, he got his own bearings, uh, asked me to step outside and uh, talk to him for a minute. Uh, the judge uh, very kindly said, okay, uh, you win. Um, I want you to go in, thank thank your opponent, and walk out of the room. And uh, don't you know? Don't start any rumors. Don't talk about this. Uh, but uh, you know, get out of here. You won. So Dan went back into the room. I shook his hand. I said thank you, uh, and uh, took off. How, how how did he seem to take that? He was very quiet. Uh, he you know uh, thanked me as well. And uh, I shut the door, and it was pretty obvious that uh, he was going to get the talk from a complete stranger. (laughs) 
From West Virginia Public Broadcasting, this is Us and Them. It's the podcast where we tell stories from America's cultural divides. I'm Trey Kay. Today we're talking about the talk. Dan Mistich's story about the debate tournament made me wonder, how could a guy get through 12 years of school and get into an elite college like West Point and still know nothing about sex? I mean, even if his parents never gave him the talk, didn't he have sex education class in school? For all the fuss about sex education in America, students get precious little of it. It seems we Americans spend more time arguing about what students should learn about sex in school than we spend actually teaching them anything about sex. Later in the podcast, we'll hear from a historian who's studied sex education. And we'll hear stories from listeners about how they figured things out. Spoiler alert, they probably didn't learn much about it in school. American schools have been trying to teach sex education for more than a century. And it seems that no matter how they do it, it makes somebody mad, sometimes really mad. That's what happened at my alma mater a couple of years ago. We all corralled into the gym. The assistant principal told me that it was some sort of sex ed assembly. All the grades, grades 9 through 12, sat down in the gym. Originally I thought, okay, cool, we need sex ed at G-Dub. These students are from George Washington High School in Charleston, West Virginia. I was in the G-Dub class of 1980, but these guys were only there a couple years ago. That's when the school was in the national news for a legal spat that erupted over this very sex education assembly. I talked with some of the students just after it happened. Our principal came in and introduced a woman named Pam Stencil, who was going to be giving us a presentation on sex. Welcome to 2013, students. One of the students recorded Pam Stenzel's talk on her cell phone. We now have over 30 sexually transmitted diseases, 30% of them absolutely incurable. That means you get one of these diseases and you've got it for life. She was using the space of a high school gym like a wrestling arena. She was shouting at the top of her lungs and nobody could hear anything that she was saying until she finally lowered her voice about 15 minutes in. Here's the line. Absolutely no genital contact of any kind. I remember her vividly describing what virginity was and then screaming at the crowd, don't you dare try to tell them you're a virgin if you've ever done anything with anyone regarding a genital. From my perspective, it just sounded like misinformation. One of the most common diseases among the students here at GW, the students sitting in this room, one of the most common diseases among the students here today is chlamydia. She started saying things like, one in four of you in the gym have chlamydia. And then when she tried to scare us with facts, all the facts just seemed fake. I have girlfriends that were later telling me that there was crying in the bathrooms afterward. She got her point across that, in her opinion, abstinence was the only way 
you know, I agree with this. I, I think, I think it's a good thing. I don't, but I don't think I agree with the way it was brought across. Right after the assembly, kids were mad and you could tell. And so were some of the parents when they heard about it. I found a piece of poster board and made a sign. What did it say? The sign said, um, let me, let me try to remember, pretty much for real information about birth control and free condoms, stop here. (laughs) That's Sherry Heflin Callahan. And she was planning to take this sign and stand in front of the high school. Sherry had four kids at GW. And when they found out they were having an assembly on sex ed, they didn't want to go. Because my mom happened at the time to run the state's teenage pregnancy prevention program. And when the kid's grandmother was over at the house, there was lots of talk about sex. It was typical dinner conversation for Nana to say things like, did you know they've come out with a new female condom? Sherry says at first there was lots of eye rolling from the kids. Then the kids find out that Nana is a good source for condoms, not just for themselves, but for them for their friends. Um, it gets a little more comfortable. And so, frankly, they had probably had a lot better education than most kids because it had been an open discussion in my house um, about different ways to prevent pregnancy, why you want to use a condom, um, why abstinence is a good idea. Uh, and, And I think that they had a comfortable enough relationship with us and we'd open the dialogue. And they were like, well, mom, we've heard all this before. Do we really have to go? (laughs) So I told them no, they didn't have to go. And then uh, one of my kids got a a tweet that said that the speaker was going to be talking about abstinence only. And that sort of set my hair a little bit on fire. I mean, you're, you're for a comprehensive sex education, right? That's right. And when I say comprehensive, I am not talking about what are the options for birth control. I'm talking about starting at the beginning to say, Abstinence is a real option, and that's something many of you hopefully may consider. But if it's not, you know, here are your options. If you know that you are going to engage in a sexual relationship, here are some other options. If you had unprotected sex and you a condom broke, here are your other options. And I believe that denying those students and our children access to that information is as criminal as telling them they shouldn't wash their hands when they go to the bathroom. I mean, if we're going to protect them from disease, it's, in my mind, uh, just as important for them to learn how their own body works and how to uh, prevent uh, pregnancies, how to take care of themselves from a health perspective if they're engaging in sex because like I said they don't they think if they're on the pill they don't need to use a condom which is not true and getting that message through to them means talking to them on their level with language they understand in a non-judgmental manner where you can really engage them in a dialogue that they see how this connects to their real life but, but isn't it possible that with all the information and when you have a comprehensive sex education course, that in some ways you can maybe put ideas in the young person's mind that wasn't really even there in the first place, and all of a sudden you are promoting sex as opposed to actually trying to curtail it? Well, there is that argument, but 
I truly believe that we should have some confidence in our education system and the level of input that's typically involved in the development of any program that teaches sex education, that we should allow them to do their job. And I, I think in a lot of ways they get hamstrung by administration or misguided decision makers who believe that if we don't talk about it, they're not going to do it because that is just not true. So after the school brought in Pam Stenzel to talk about abstinence, Sherry wanted to hand out a little sex education of her own, but she never did. Well, in the meantime, my kids find the sign and they're immediately like, Mom, you can't do this. Do you know how humiliating this will be for us? This is awful. We're going to be known as the, as the kids whose mom passed out the condoms. It will never go away. That abstinence-only speaker, Pam Stenzel, doesn't just upset parents who think kids should get free condoms. Even people who agree with her that sex outside of marriage is morally wrong don't always like Stenzel's in-your-face, scared-straight tactics. She was just being too uh, alarmist, too too uh, strident. I don't know. I just don't appreciate that. I, I like a more reasoned approach. This is Don McElroy. I'm a dentist in Bryan College Station. I'm a former member and chairman of the Texas State Board of Education. I'm a religious guy. I look at the divine, and I seek out to understand its intentions for us when it comes to sex education, to comes to sex uh, between, you know, a boy and a girl and what they, what's appropriate. Other people have uh, different views, and that's going to lead, lead to a lot of conflict. When Dr. McElroy was on the State Board of Education, he helped set standards for how sex ed was to be taught in Texas. He sat through long public hearings. People from all over the ideological spectrum argued for various approaches to sex ed. This one guy spoke at the very end, and he, I thought he was persuasive. But one reason I thought he was persuasive is because he hit on, on what I'd already dis- thought was the right idea, that when he was the last guy to speak, it's after a whole day, he was actually for comprehensive sex education. He had a very brief testimony. He was very articulate. And what he stated was, he says, I just want the textbooks to support what I'm teaching my child at home. And that's exactly what I want. Guess what? What if parents want two different things? There's going to be conflict. My solution to the whole thing, and something as simple as this, is just have two programs for the children. Have one that's traditional. Have one that's the progressive comprehensive sex education. Have one that speaks about abstinence until marriage. See, I personally have no problem with anyone teaching about uh, contraception, with condoms, about STDs, as long as you put just one simple caveat in there. When you are married, you may want to delay having children because you may have a lot of debt. You may want to wait a couple of years. You may have lots of reasons before you want to have children. Here is how you do it. And then they can talk all they want to about contraception. But if it doesn't have that simple caveat of no sex before marriage, Dr. McElroy thinks the schools are sending the wrong message, or at least one that doesn't jibe with what's being taught in his home. My understanding of the Bible influences the way and what I would like to teach my children. I'm teaching them that God exists. I'm teaching them they're created in the image of God. I teach them that they are a sinner. And uh, 
a lot of other things. But in the Bible, it says that when Adam and Eve got together, that the two became one flesh. One flesh is, is when they consummated their marriage. Well, you're not talking about two fleshes, three fleshes, or four fleshes. Things get a little complex there. I believe that I wanted my children to grow up and that they would be one flesh. They would have one young lady that they would uh, end up ha- becoming one flesh with and to marry. And uh, my reason for believing the Bible is I look at God and I look at God as love, God is pure. God is faithful. Well, if you take those characteristics of the divine and you want to apply it to relationships with boys and girls, what you're going to have is you want them to be show love. And what, what is love? It, it's, it's to really respect and honor and bring happiness to the other person and their health. What does it mean to be pure? It means you're going to keep themselves chaste until they get married. And faithful is they're going to – it requires them to uh, – not go, you know, having extra affairs requires no extra relationships. That's the ideal. I get it from the character of God. God is love. God is pure. God is faithful. That's what I want to be taught. So Dr. McElroy has supported compromise between abstinence and comprehensive sex ed. But he really longs for our nation to strike a bolder moral course. I think what's going to have an impact is the whole moral tone of the, of the country and which way our country goes. I'm talking about an attitude of our leadership in our communities, the leadership in, in our state and national, to have leadership, congressmen, presidents, everyone that's going to say, we want a moral society. This is the standard. To get that out in front of them, to get the entertainment a little pressure on the entertainment industry and the music industry to sit there and, and, and put out some decent songs. That's that's where I think we need to emphasize. That's one of the reasons I really welcome being on your program and talking about it. Hopefully there's people uh, that will listen, that will sit there and, and realize this is an important issue, where we're going as a whole society. I think we have as a responsibility to, to, to think about those things before we as a society say, oh, everything goes. We're going to have kids later. Let's... We don't want to set any standards. I think we need to set standards. And those of us that feel strong about it, I think, need to speak out about it. And, and let's, let's honor the institutions that built this country and that this country was founded upon. It wasn't founded on a bunch of guys coming over here and free love and all this. It was, it was uh, we, we had our problems, but my gosh, it was, it's not the kind of way we're heading right now as, as a country. And it's scary. It's very scary. Dr. McElroy believes that the moral tone of society has a greater influence on kids than what they learn in a sex education course at school. And there are many things that Dr. McElroy and I don't see eye to eye on. But on this, I think he's right on the money. What's more, there's research to back this up. I went to see my friend Jonathan Zimmerman. He's a professor at New York University. God, you're already wearing your mouse ears. He studies the history of education. And it just so happens that his newest book is a history of sex education, as it's been taught around the globe. It's called Too Hot to Handle. Why is sex ed so important? Well, um, it isn't that important, I argue in my book, in many countries, because it's so slim, right? Because it's so brief and restricted. John says students in most industrialized countries just get a few hours of sex education a year, at most. It was a real challenge to write a book 
about a subject that happens so little. It was like the Seinfeld thing. How do you have a how do you have a a TV series about nothing? Well, I don't think it's about nothing, and I think the reason to study it is precisely because it does illuminate so many human differences about the subject of sex. There hasn't been a lot of sex ed in schools around the world, but boy, there's been a lot of talk about sex ed, right, among adults around the world. And that's really what my book is about. It's about this cacophony of voices. And I think from that cacophony, we can learn a huge amount about human difference and diversity, even if very little material substantively gets into our classrooms. When did we start teaching sex education in America? Well, Americans started teaching it about 100 years ago during the so-called progressive era. And they started teaching it because as America urbanized, um, the urbanization brought with it a venereal uh, disease epidemic. Put simply, middle-class men were patronizing prostitutes, which has always been a major conduit for STDs, and then going home and infecting their wives. And this caused great alarm um, across America and um, uh, uh, in in the minds of uh, people like Jane Addams, who wrote a whole book about it called The Social Evil. Um, But what was different and interesting about the way Americans addressed this problem was it was through education. So this isn't the only country where they've got that problem. Precisely the same thing is happening in places like Paris and Berlin. But the difference is in Europe, the, the, the remedies, if you will, tended to be legal ones. We've got to regulate prostitution more closely uh, or we've got to ban it. And the American solution was we have to teach people differently. It was an educational solution. And that's why sex ed began in the United States. It didn't begin in America because VD started in America or that there was anything nastier about our epidemic than the one in Europe. It began in the U.S. because of our commitment to education as a remedy for social ills. Can you speak a little bit about how that first was done? I mean, was it something like where it was a more of a mechanical thing, like, you know, we insert part A into part B, or... Was there some type of moral content? Well, here's the thing. It was mechanical, but part A and part B were like the stems of flowers or maybe very occasionally the uterus of rabbits. Um, uh, If you've heard the term birds and the bees, it comes from this, this era because the birds and the bees, that is plant and animal reproduction, solved a big problem for sex educators, which is how do we teach about sex without making kids more interested in it? Because after all, that was the critique at the time. The critique was we shouldn't introduce this subject because it's going to create kind of prurient feelings and interests in kids. So to respond to that, you've got to explain how you can have a sex ed curriculum that doesn't make kids more interested in sex. And the answer to that question is use plant and animal models. So that's what it looked like, you know. You, you would learn about the pollination of flowers and, you know, you would learn about the rabbits. And then near the very end, there would be something about people, but it would be very both elusive and elusive. It, it would use a lot of kind of indirect illusions. And we know from memoirs and other things that oftentimes it was just lost on kids. The kids didn't get it at the end. They'd say, okay, we've heard all this stuff about plants and animals. Well, what do, what do people do? And I've got a great quote in my book where a teacher in Wales, um, uh, she, she, um, somebody in the class asks her, so do, do human beings, do they get born like, like baby chicks? Because, of course, the teacher had just done a lesson about, you know, the reproduction of chickens. And the teacher says something like, oh, no, it's not nearly as beautiful and I don't want to talk about it now. 
which I find just a perfect encapsulation, right? So all that stuff in the natural world, that's lovely. Ours isn't, and let's not talk about it. When I was reading your book, I kind of had the idea that the things that I heard people arguing about at the turn of the last century are still seem to be the same things they're arguing about now. Well, you know, the argument really until, I'd say, until the 80s was, should we have sex ed in schools at all? That is, are schools an appropriate venue for this topic? Because there were a lot of people, and in this country, a lot of them circled around the Catholic Church, who just felt like school was an inappropriate place to address the subject. This is a personal matter. This is also a religious matter, and the schools are ostensibly secular. Um, so schools shouldn't be addressing it. Everything changed after the HIV epidemic. That's why I said the 80s. You know, AIDS changed everything um, in this country. Instead of some people being against sex ed and other people being for it, everyone became for it. They just wanted different versions of it, right? So people on the new right who had been objecting to the very presence of sex ed after the HIV epidemic, they support sex ed. It's just they support a version called abstinence only. That is, of course, sex ed. Right. Um, but what they what they move away from is this idea that the school shouldn't address the topic. And that's what I, I think from pretty much, I don't say ni- 1900 up to the 1980s. I mean, it just really seems to be a backing and forth thing about whether we should or whether we shouldn't, whether this is appropriate, whether it isn't, right? Yes. And also, I mean, I, I think part of that I, or beneath that is this idea of whether children, especially young children, are sexual beings. The argument against sex ed before the 1980s was that sex ed would corrupt otherwise innocent kids by introducing the subject. And I think that continues to be a a huge dilemma in the United States and around the world. You know, the, the Freudian revolution held that kids were sexual in utero, right? I mean, we're all sexual beings. But a lot of people, both in the United States and around the world, have never accepted that. Um, so the idea of introducing this subject continues to be hugely controversial, especially in places like Africa and Asia. And John reminds me that you don't have to travel beyond the U.S. borders to find clashing ideas about sex education. You know, I would expect that sex education in Brookline, Massachusetts, looked pretty different from sex education in, say, Lubbock, Texas, right? But I do think there are some general comparisons you can make. And I think the most important one is that historically in the United States— Sex ed purpose has been to ward off and prevent certain negative social outcomes, specifically unwanted pregnancy and STDs. Um, But in continental Europe, especially Scandinavia, um, sex ed developed a different set of goals, much more oriented towards the individual and trying to help each student, each individual, develop and determine their sexual life. That's a very different goal. And I actually realized the difference. I had an aha moment on this one. And if you've done a project like this, you know often you're living inside your head so much you think maybe you're going crazy and you've invented these patterns. And then finally you find something that really confirms what you were perceiving. And I found that in the archives in Sweden in the, the papers of the leading sex ed organization there. 
Somebody from Ireland, which had a very conservative form of sex ed, writes a very praiseful, almost sycophantic letter to the head of sex ed in Sweden saying, basically, why do you rock so much? Why are you so awesome? And, and more specifically, why are your teen pregnancy rates so low and your teen STD rates so low? And the guy is named Carl Bothius, a very famous figure in, in Sweden. He writes back a very kind letter in which he says, thanks a lot for your kind remarks. He says, it's, it's true that our teen pregnancy and STD rates are lower than yours, but we don't know if that's because of sex ed, which is true. And that's a really important point. You know, y- y- there, there are a million other things that socialize people. So it's true that our rates are lower than that, but we don't know if that's because of what we do in schools. And then he says, and by the way, that's not the goal. He says, of course, nobody wants unwanted teen pregnancy or STDs, right? But that's not our goal. Our goal, again, is to help each individual lead a fulfilling sexual life. John says that for the most part, American schools are a long way from sharing that goal. I was um, on a plane last week, and I was, this is embarrassing, I was reading my book, which is something I try never to do. But I was going to a talk, and I had to remind myself what the book said, and sometimes you've got to do that too. So the guy's sitting next to me, very kind, and he sees what I'm, I'm reading. He says, how's the book? And I say, it's pretty boring. I wrote it. Uh, and which is always what I say if somebody sees me reading something that, that, that I wrote. And then we start talking. And this guy, he was, um, uh, he was a contractor, a builder, somewhere in a different part of the country. And um, he says, you know, when my daughter turned 16, she came home and she asked me, um, you know, if she should have sex with her boyfriend. And I didn't answer. I said, come with me. And we got into my truck and we drove to the poor part of town where people live in trailers. And I didn't say anything. I just drove through it, and um, by the time we got to the end, she said, okay, Dad, I get the point. We can go home now. This is a form of sex education, right? Remember, everyone gets sex ed. My, my book is only about what happens in schools, right, which is a very tiny part, right, a negligible part, I would argue, of the sexual knowledge that people get, right? This dad was giving sex ed, without a doubt, right? Now, what kind of sex ed is he giving? He's giving what I would call a very American form of sex ed, which is Watch out. Danger ahead. Right? Um, uh, Sex is a dangerous thing. And so what you need to do is avoid it or do it in a very safe way. Because if you don't, there are going to be all these terrible things that happen to you. And you're going to end up on the poor side of town. Exactly. Right. One of my colleagues who is a podcast host, she's Danish. Mm -hmm. And just so you know, I'm talking about Leah Tao, the host of the Strangers podcast. Sometimes on her podcast, she shares that when she was growing up in Denmark, parents of her boyfriend and her parents would say, you know, we, you can come and sleep at our yeah. house and oh, you yeah. can cohabitate. And, and just like I right now, who have a, a teenage son, and I'm taking him out often to drive the car. Yeah. I mean, it seems like in a way that's what these Danish and Scandinavian parents are, are doing. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And you can see some of that in the sex ed classrooms, too. You know, you can read about Swedish sex ed classrooms where they don't just show you a condom or demonstrate it, which is the thing that always creates controversy here. They, they give out the condoms and they tell the kids, look, go home and experiment with these so you know what they feel like. And so when it's time for you to use one, you'll know what you're doing. Um, much more explicit, much more direct. Um, but here's the part I think that might surprise your, your podcast colleague, depending on when she lived in Denmark and how recently she left. Um, 
those societies have become immigrant societies. And that fact is changing the sex ed scenario because a lot of the newcomers, not all of them, but a lot of them, are extremely uncomfortable with the kind of approach that you're describing. And Sweden, I read recently, it's got about 10 million people. One million of them were born in another country. Sweden is now fractionally more of an immigrant society than America. But it's all of incredibly recent vintage, right? Most of it comes from, you know, North Africa, the Middle East, South Asia. And in terms of their presumptions about sexuality, a lot of these newcomers are extremely conservative. And they hold their kids out of school to, to, to protest sex ed. Uh, you know, they stage sometimes demonstrations. John says that some of these immigrant groups have forged surprising alliances in their fight against sex education. Let's take the United Kingdom, for example, right? The United Kingdom has witnessed since the 80s a massive influx of immigrants from the subcontinent and from the Middle East. Before they got there, sex ed was already a contested subject. But it became a much more contested one after they arrived because people started boycotting schools that taught sex ed. But more interestingly, these immigrants started to join hands politically with Tories, with conservatives in parliament, with whom they agree about nothing except this, right? They don't agree about immigration itself, right? Because many of these Tories are quite anti-immigrant in their impulses. But on the question of sex ed, they join hands. On the continent of Europe, this really scrambles politics, I think, in, in ways that for Americans are fascinating and confusing. So, for example, in countries like Netherlands and Sweden, one of the things you'll hear now from anti-immigrant groups is we shouldn't let in these newcomers because they don't believe in gay rights. It's not an argument you would, you would ever hear in America. You wouldn't hear somebody in Texas who wants to make a wall between Texas and Mexico say, we shouldn't let in these Mexicans because they don't believe in gay rights. Because of the way our politics is configured, I think it's quite likely that the person who wants to put up the wall doesn't believe in gay rights either. So they're not going to say, don't let these Mexicans in because they don't believe in gay rights. But that's what you hear in countries like the Netherlands. Here's something that struck me about Professor Zimmerman's argument. Many schools in the United States have embraced this scary, punitive model of sex education that's supposed to make kids think twice about having sex. But the bottom line is, our rates for teen pregnancy and STDs are still distressingly high. Do, do you think that our haphazard approach to sex education, has it backfired in, in really kind of the outcome that we're seeking? Well, here's the thing. It's very hard to answer that question precisely because it's so haphazard, right? I mean, if a kid has a total of five or six hours of sex ed in an academic year, how, as a matter of social science, are you going to show what, quote, effect that has. We found that this idea that teaching about abstinence will make people abstain, there's really no evidence for that, no strong evidence, right? But there isn't also a lot of good, strong evidence that teaching what, you know, people on the left like to call comprehensive sex ed, including contraception and abortion, all these subjects. We don't have a lot of sustained evidence, although we have some glimmers, that that changes people's behavior either. Look, I think all of us who work in the world of schooling and education, we exaggerate the influence of formal educational institutions. Why? Because we're biased, right? I'm a teacher. But I don't think that schools have had nearly as much influence on kids' sexual ideas and behavior, even in places like Sweden, than sex educators like to think. The real influences have always been peers and now what I call screens, you know, mass media. 
students get their information from places other than school. That was the case when we surveyed them 100 years ago, and it's still the case today. So if we aren't getting our knowledge about sex from school, where are we getting it? When I was in the fifth grade, my boyfriend, which and that meant that we sat together at lunch. I asked some pals and Facebook friends if they could tell me how they figured things out. He went to the county fair and he bought a ring with two little hearts and our initials on it. And the ring made my finger turn green and I thought I was pregnant. Because I knew that to have babies, you got married and you wore a ring and it made perfect sense. Growing up in a Catholic family, uh, the sex education was sort of catch as catch can. I was visiting an aquarium in someplace in Florida, and there was this big tank with dolphins. And two dolphins were mating. Suddenly, everything made sense to me, and I understood sex for the first time. And I was also very embarrassed for the dolphins. Oh, Jesus. I remember some of those early discussions about, you know, what did those words mean um, that were taboo? And the degree of disinformation was just phenomenal. <laughs> My mother sat us down when we were small children and explained, you know, the, the, the mechanics of reproduction to us in terms of uh, that a man and a woman who love each other then do these things with these body parts and that that's, what, that's where babies come from. But they didn't really, she didn't give us any information about, you know, what sex was actually like. All of our information about what sex was like and what erotic experience was came from my father's playboys, which were in the basement in giant stacks, by the way. My father was a loved porn, apparently. How did I actually learn about sex first? I believe that um, mostly through movies and TV. And I remember asking my parents, like, what's going, like, what's happening there? What, you know, where, where, um, what are those people doing? Like, when do people start doing things like that? And my parents kind of hedging awkwardly and, you know, saying like, well, you know, that's things that, those are things that grownups do when they're in love and eventually babies come out of that. I learned uh, about sex uh, through the basic, you know, misinformation that I shared with my friends and my friends shared with me, the penthouse forum letters that uh, would uh, reach me. And also through this book called The Sensuous Man, that I'm not sure how I got a hold of, but somehow it made its way into my room. I'm, I'm guessing it was my dad's, um, but I grabbed it and it stayed on my bookshelf for many years after that. I uh, remember at the age of maybe 12 or 13, I uh, purchased the book, Everything You Wanted to Know About Sex, But Were Afraid to Ask. And uh, I uh, read that book carefully, forward and back, and um, I recall hearing in my head the word fellatio as rhyming with patio. So it was fellatio, fellatio. This word was constantly being brought up, fellatio. Um, it wasn't until the movie Hair when you hear the song Sodomy Fellatio. So then I knew that was the word cunnilingus, and then it, I'd hear it as better ask me, not knowing that that was the word pederasty.
So I've always had a little, uh, I'm always behind the curve with these words, you know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying. And in so many ways, I felt behind the curve in learning about the very words in this song and so, so many things about sex. So I wasn't going to tell you this story. I'm still embarrassed, but some of my misconceptions about sex lasted until very late in life, when I was 33. I took an anatomy and physiology class as part of getting my massage therapy certification. One day in class, we were talking about the reproductive system, and I realized I had been wrong for years about how women were built. I thought that women peed through their sex organs, just like we guys do. And I didn't realize that there were two separate parts there. (laughs) I recall my female classmates laughing pretty loud, and I turned beet red. I can't believe I just admitted that to you. It makes me wonder what else I don't know. Still, given the little bit that most people are taught about sex, I guess I've done pretty well. I fumbled around and basically figured things out like most people do. And it's worked out okay. My son is graduating from high school next month. This has been Us and Them. Our show was written and produced by me, Trey Kay, Chris Julin, and Catherine Winter. Michael Lipton and Tristan Lozow wrote and performed our show music. Us and Them would not be a show if we didn't have the generous help from the wonderful people from West Virginia Public Broadcasting or a grant from the West Virginia Humanities Council. And we are grateful for the support of the CRC Foundation. Special thanks to the people who've liked our Facebook page or who tweeted about our show. Our Twitter handle is UsThemPodcast. Or you can contact me, Trey underscore K. And we are very grateful for the positive reviews that we've received on iTunes. And if you'll do us a favor, please keep it coming. It makes a huge difference. For a future program, we're wondering if you can help us know, are we speaking to both liberals and conservatives? Can you let us know on our Facebook page? I consider you a friend, and as a friend, I have to warn you, you have to be careful with this program you're doing because it could jeopardize your career if you are too kind to conservatives. I say that sort of tongue-in-cheek, but there's some truth to it. See you next time on Us and Them.